Welcome to the Arts and Humanities podcast for the 19th of February 2009. Today we have a recording from a research seminar that took place on the 16th of February. During this seminar, Richard Orme, Head of Accessibility for the Royal National Institute for Blind People, gave a talk about publishers and how they can make their products accessible for people with sight problems. The talk is introduced by Jonathan Davis. I'm very pleased to introduce Richard Orme. He's the Head of Accessibility uh, at the uh, RNIB, or the Royal National Institute for the Blind. He's responsible for the organization's work on improving access to technology, information, culture, and the environment. This role is Richard's latest appointment in a career of 20 years working on accessibility for people with disabilities. Richard has worked with a wide range of adaptive technologies, written for journals, presented in international conferences, and developed software solutions. He has benefited from working with hundreds of children and adults with sight problems, mainly in identifying successful strategies for education or employment. After joining the RNIB as a system programmer, Richard developed the software for the UK's first digital daily newspaper, on the morning of publication, blind and deaf slash blind readers were able to read the full text of a Guardian in synthetic speech, electronic braille, or large print. This work demonstrated the huge potential of ICT for people with print disabilities in the days before the advent of the World Wide Web. He believes that with less than 5% of published material available in alternative formats, this potential is far from being fully realized. Richard is at the forefront of RNIB's efforts to improve access to books for children and adults with print impairments. He is a member of the steering group established by the Education Department of the UK Government, which will oversee a pilot textbook project and technical investigations over the next two years. So without further ado, I hand it over to Richard. Jonathan, thank you, and thank you uh, for turning up tonight. There's some additional seats at the back if you have a late rush. People can come in and, and squeeze in and standing room available as well. Thank you for turning up um, for what I hope will be an interesting and informative uh, presentation for myself on the ways that people with sight impairment and other print disabilities are able to carry on reading, which is the title I've given this presentation. I had a picture of Sid James up there on my first version of this, and I wasn't <laughs> sure whether or not everyone would know who Sid James was. So I put myself up there, and by the end of today's presentation, hopefully you'll know who I am. Um, so the structure of tonight's presentation, then, is that I'm going to talk about um, RNIB, the organisation. I'm then going to introduce you to sight loss and what it is and the ways that people with sight loss read. Um, we're going to then talk about uh, RNIB as a publisher, uh, a charity producing books, newspapers, magazines and so on. I'll show you what we do and I'll show you some video of some of our operations actually in practice. Um, and when we've talked about uh, braille and audio and large print and electronic I'll also talk about our campaigning work. Uh, as Jonathan said, uh, less than 5% of published materials are available in alternate formats, such that someone with sight impairment or other reading disabilities are able to read them. And we'll talk about our work, our adv advocacy work, our campaigning work, and our work with the publishing community to try and shift that um, forward. And then I'll end with some discussion around ebooks, which I'm sure um, formed at least part of the discussion that you're, you're learning about in your course. Uh, and I'll also end my introduction by saying, um, welcome fellow students. I'm also a, a student at the moment at Warwick University doing an MBA at the Business School, which is where Angus learnt his trade or bits of it or something. So, uh, so there's a nice kind of circular loop there. So then, um, just check, everyone can hear me all right. 
hope you can see the screen, people are comfortable. Good. Right then, about RNIB. Well, RNIB was founded in 1868 as the British and Foreign Society for Improving the Embossed Literature of the Blind. For the, for the, that's right, for the embossed literature of the blind, not my words. Uh, and the reason why I kind of go back that far is really to, to demonstrate that access to books and published materials is right in the genes of RNIB. It isn't something that we've kind of kept come to lately. It was actually the whole reason why RNIB started as a campaigning organisation. It was founded by a chap called uh, Thomas Rhodes Armitage, who came back from the Crimean War after working uh, with Florence Nightingale uh, and found that he was going blind. Um, and as a learned and educated person was wanting to carry on reading, which is the situation for people losing their sight these days, of course, uh, and found really the whole provision of print materials to blind people um, a complete mess. There were lots of different kind of techniques and, and mechanisms being used. And so he, together with four other blind individuals, met at his house in London and, developed, and did research and looked at what sort of systems might be uh, made use of. And after two years of study, they landed on a system, an obscure system that wasn't being used very much, being developed in, um, in Paris, France, um, invented by a chap called Louis Braille. Uh, and that's what they decided they would go with. And they developed that and produced more and more and more. And it's become the kind of worldwide way that people with no sight access and print materials through tactile means. And this is the 200th anniversary of his birth in 2009. So there's celebrations going on all over the place. So in the first year, the, the recorded turnover of that uh, small organisation was two pounds, 11 shillings and sixpence. And now we are the Royal National Institute of Blind People with a turnover of around 100 million, 2,000 staff, 4,000 volunteers, and a worldwide reputation. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit now about, about sight loss, because not everyone in the room will kind of understand the, the spectrum that's there, really. In the UK, we estimate that um, around 2 million people have a degree of sight loss which is enough to affect their daily living. So this isn't sight loss and then you put a pair of glasses on and then you can see again. This is uncorrectable sight loss. It means you're unable to read a newspaper without some real assistance. Maybe you find recognising people across the street uh, not easy to do. Um, maybe you find reading signs and so on difficult. You can't really follow the action on the, on the television. That level. Um, there is a system in place for where people can register themselves as blind or as partially sighted and thereby accrue some certain benefits and so on. Not everyone chooses to do it by any stretch of the imagination. The number of registered blind or partially sighted in the UK is 370,000. Um, so you know, lots of people aren't registering and that's because many people with a sight loss are actually over 65, 1.9 million of that 2 million are over 65. So they don't consider themselves to be blind or partially sighted or visually impaired. They consider themselves not to be able to see as well as they used to. It's a natural part of aging is how they would um, consider that. And also there are other folk who would struggle to read regular print material. These are people perhaps who have physical disabilities that mean they're unable to hold or turn a print page. Or there may be people with specific learning disabilities such as dyslexia that mean that they simply can't make sense of the uh, print on, on the page. So an additional one million people there. In many countries, the services for people who are blind, partially sighted and dyslexic are kind of rolled into one agency. 
So in the States, there is the recording for the blind and dyslexic, for example, which produces textbooks and curriculum materials, and they service that wider need. And the vast majority of the people actually who subscribe to those services are dyslexic, not blind or partially sighted. But it's an accident of history, which means that blindness and low vision is something that kind of is, is well embedded, well recognized, well identified, and there are services in place. So for folk who then have a sight problem, um, how is it that they actually read? How is it they read print? And some of them do read print, some of them use other formats. Um, so this is based on the uh, Vision, sorry, is it called Vision 1000? Network 1000, sorry. Uh, research that was done by Birmingham University. Uh, and here there are a panel of a thousand blind and partially sighted people, and they're asked a whole battery of different um, questions that kind of help us and other agencies in the UK understand their needs, uh, their lifestyles, their choices. Um, and coming out of that, we found that 57% um, of people in this cohort would use large print. So that's print we would define as 14 point or over. 72% of using audio to read, 5% uh, would be using braille, uh, and standard print is used by 43%. And of course, those numbers don't add up to 100, and that's because people would use different strategies in different places. Uh, and some material just isn't available in those other formats. So people might be using a personal reader. So someone in work, or someone in study, or someone who's got the money to employ someone or have a volunteer, they would have someone come around their house or support them in their, in their workplace who would read correspondence to them or meet, minutes of meetings and those sorts of things. So people would use a personal reader. They may use a magnifier, which could be a, a regular magnifying glass. It could be a, an electronic magnifier. And these days, these are kind of about the same size of a Nintendo DS, that kind of size thing. And you'd move it across the printed page and it would show it on a display and you would be able to maybe choose the colours and size magnification and so on. So a little portable uh, video magnifier. Or there are desktop magnifiers that would sit on top of the desk, surprisingly enough. And you put the print material underneath it and you move it around and you get a nice big image on a nice big screen. And again, you can kind of zoom in and change the colours, have it full colour, have it yellow text on a black background if that's what works for you. Um, and 20% of people use computers to read material that otherwise would be read uh, through print medium. So I'm going to move now, having described the kind of population of folk out there and the ways that they're reading, to talk about RNIB as a publisher. Now we've been engaging a great deal more with what I would call the mainstream publishing community over the last few years, and they actually didn't know we were doing a lot of what we were doing all entirely legal, all entirely appropriate, but kind of a bit of a rogue activity, a kind of co-publishing or parallel publishing operation. What we do is we operate under an act of Parliament, which is the Copyright Visually Impaired Persons Act 2002. And what this act means is that um, it is legal for bodies such as RNIB and indeed for individual persons who are visually impaired. They regular copyright legislation doesn't apply to them and to us in as much as we are able to take the published material, the copyrighted material, and basically format shift it. We can create from it audio or large print or braille or e-text material in order for someone to be able to access it, an accessible version of it. There are kind of checks and balances around that, but basically we operate under that 
what used to happen that it was that we as an organisation used to have to write to the publisher and say, we'd like to make this book available, please, can we do that? Uh, and sometimes people would come back and say, yes, of course, straight, straight away we know who you are. Other times it would take a long time, sometimes we get no reply. Now, no longer do we actually have to wait for that. We've got the right to be able to do um, that kind of um, co-publishing, alternate publishing. What it doesn't do, of course, is give uh, a blind or partially sighted person the right to be able to access that material in the alternate format. It simply gives us as a producer the ability to start messing around with that material. As I said, there are checks and balances in there, so we can't kind of change <coughs> the meaning of what's being done. We can't mess around with it. We're about providing access to material. I also mentioned that we were doing more work in partnership with publishers, and that's what we're up to now. And I meant to dig out a copy, and maybe there's a copy upstairs. But in the bookseller, uh, this latest edition, uh, if you were to look at that, you'd see there's a several-page kind of advert insert thing in there. Uh, and that's about our venture with an, um, several mainstream publishing uh, entities in order to um, extend the range of material that's available in large print through mainstream uh, book trade. I'll talk about that a little bit later. So we now are one of the largest accessible format, if I can use that term, uh, producers in the world. I think we're only really kind of beaten by some American organisations. Um, and unlike some countries, uh, we get no government funding. I was presenting at a conference uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we were hearing from folk from Sweden and Norway and Finland and the States, and they're getting several million dollars a year of state funding to do what they do. We don't receive any state funding at all. So um, I'm going to show you some exciting stuff. Um, so if you're shuffling in your seats, getting a bit bored, I'm going to show you some video in a minute. In a minute and I'll show you how it is that we produce Braille from a regular print book. But in addition to books, we produce bills. So if you have a mobile phone and you want your, your phone bill in Braille, uh, we produce booklets, so people might be producing kind of stuff as a local authority and they want to make that accessible to Braille readers. In magazines, we produce a whole range of magazines ourselves, where sometimes we're taking articles from print magazines, sometimes we're creating our own content, uh, and books as well. Uh, our first magazine, our Braille magazine, Progress, was produced in 1892 and still continues, and these magazines are read all over the world. The books are available through our National Library Service based in Stockport, and also there are titles available for sale. So we used to run just as a library service, but kind of we twigged that maybe blind people are just like sighted people, and sometimes they want to borrow, and sometimes they want to buy and own content. So we've shifted that, and anything that is available for loan, we try to make available for sale as well. So I'm going to show you a video now, which is called Creating a Braille Book, uh, and it shows you basically the process we go through to get Braille from a print book. Only a very small proportion of books produced in print that are available for sighted readers to buy or borrow are available in Braille. Creating a Braille version of a print book requires a number of manual processes. RNIB is working with publishers to encourage them to provide us with an electronic version of books we want to offer in Braille. But for the vast majority of books, we begin with a hard copy. The rest of the recording of the video is cut for the purposes of the podcast. 
So you saw in the uh, kind of uh, figures at the beginning that 5% of the readership who responded to that survey read Braille, but for many people Braille isn't a format they learn, especially for folk who lose their sight in later life. Um, so I'm going to talk now about RNIB's audio publishing, uh, and this is where basically we produce um, audio versions or human narrated um, speech versions of books. And one of our flagship services at RNIB is our talking book service, which we have 40,000 members and some 16,000 titles of unabridged audio in our library. Um, some of the audio we've got is stuff that we've actually purchased as unabridged audio from mainstream publishers that make available through our library. Uh, but in fact, more common is the material that we produce goes back into uh, services like Audible. It's, it's high quality stuff. Um, it's recorded in um, you know, broadcast quality sound booths by actors, often, often <coughs> ce celebrities and the authors themselves would do uh, the narration for us. Uh, and so the property that we have there, of the performances, is quite valuable. And so you would find some of our content on Audible, for example. Uh, it's a subscription service, the Talking Book Service, uh, and it's often paid for by a local authority. So just as you and I, as council taxpayers, um, pay and fund our local library service, uh, if you're unable to use the library service because you can't see well enough to read the print, uh, they will make an alternative provision, and often that will be RNIB's Talking Book Service. Um, and I'm going to show you a video of our talking book CD production uh, now. But just before I do, I'll show you a typical player. Um, this is this is one made by a, a Japanese company called Bextor. There are a number on the market, and they all fulfil uh, an international standard that we've been uh, working with with other agencies across the world uh, called Daisy. Uh, and Daisy is based basically on. Um, mainstream standards from the World Wide Web Consortium and, and other places. So it's basically bringing together uh, existing content and authoring guidelines. Um, the players are... The player isn't just a CD player. You can see this is a nice little kind of battery powered one with a speaker. No disc. Um, it speaks to us, so it'll tell us things like low, low power, battery not connected, this kind of thing. Uh, and if I take a disc and, and put it in there, it will first of all identify what that disc is because it's quite hard to label a CD in a tactual way. Um, so when you push it in there, it'll announce it straight away. Disc. Is this loud enough for folk at the back? Yeah. Daisy, title. Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. So, um, Telling us the title there. Maybe. The way a bear drags his paws. His arms did not. So it, it started reading there where it left off, which is a disadvantage of lots of mainstream CD players, in that you would play some of a book and then you'd switch it off and then come back, it would start it again in the beginning, you'd have to find it. This remembers it, it has bookmark features. You can speed it up and it adjusts the pitch so it doesn't start talking in higher, higher. It, it kind of just speeds the text up for people who are using these for study purposes and so on. Uh, let me uh, let me show you the video because time's moving on uh, of some of our production processes. Then, RNIB Talking Books CD production. Each day, the post office will return anywhere between seven thousand and ten thousand Talking Books CDs to the RNIB Production and Distribution Centre here at Peterborough.
The rest of the recording of the video is cut for the purposes of the podcast. So, uh, you can see that's a, a pretty uh, automated uh, operation with lots of ro robots moving around and of course you need to have that kind of uh, output stuff going if you've got up to 10,000 or 14,000 CDs going out in any day. But of course at the, at the end of, the, of where we're actually doing the, the recording side of things, that's a really labour intensive uh, process as you would imagine. Uh, and I mentioned at the beginning that uh, only 5,000, sorry, only 5% uh, of books are available in an alternate format and very often the titles that people want aren't available in the library. So we're looking at new ways of being able to kind of increase the, the um, amount of material that's available. Uh, and this is particularly pressing in the, kind of the areas of study and, and education where curriculum materials <coughs> simply aren't available in that form. Um, so as well as kind of human narrated audio, we're also experimenting with the use of synthetic speech. That is where the computer generated voice uh, creates basically a talking book, um, but instead of a human reading it, it's run through a computer and produced in kind of quarter an hour or so for a full book. Um, I'm now going to play some of that. The book here is um, The Science of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, we've got an electronic version uh, of this book from the publisher. I believe, um, and then we use that text to basically run it through a text-to-speech program and create uh, a daisy type of phonic. Um, so if I play that on this little tiny 15-pound MP3 player now, that energy shines through in this comprehensive overview of what we now know about the red planet and how we have acquired this knowledge. Science News. The worlds of Galilea, one of the definitive descriptions of this ultimately successful mission. Alan's warts and all accounts has a breathless pace that provides a real sense of excitement as the mission unfolds. Astronomy Now, www.macmillangels.com. Ever wondered what the end of the universe might actually look like? What? Okay, I'll stop that there. So, um, intelligible, understandable, but maybe not as nice to listen to as a, as a human narrated text. But you could see that with the advent of synthetic speech, and it's getting better all the time, actually, if we can just get hold of electronic copies of published materials, then the world of access um, <coughs> suddenly becomes much better than this tiny percentage of books that are available at the moment. And I'll talk more about that right at the end. I'm going to speed up a little bit because I'm, I'm, I'm going to get waved at. No, it's okay. So large print, let me talk briefly about large print. Um, we produce a weekly newspaper called Big Print. Uh, basically take stories that are produced uh, in kind of the regular uh, mainstream newspapers and stories that are of particular interest to people with sight problems and we produce it as a large print uh, publication uh, that is subscription based and it arri arrives through your front door uh, as a postal subscription. Uh, I mentioned also about the insert in the bookseller, uh, this latest edition, that's called Focus, clearly a better read. And that's 53 titles of um, uh, consumer books that are now going to be available uh, through retail. And that initiative uh, is brought to us um, through partnerships of organisations such as BBC, HarperCollins, Random House, Penguin, Gardeners, Amazon, Falls and Waterstones. Now, you may have seen uh, large print previously in your public library. Um, it's there, there's a, often a large print section. If you go into a retailer, often there's very, very little. It, 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 the way the market operates is that basically it serves the public library um, system. And we feel that there is uh, at least the opportunity for more large print to be available for people to uh, buy in the mainstream. Uh, and that it is, with these days, with print on demand, 
uh, a viable commercial proposition. So we're, we're experimenting with that. We're doing it in partnership with our friends in the publishing community, uh, and we're putting money into publicising it and seeing if we can build uh, a marketplace for it. So if you look in the bookseller, or you keep your eyes open, if you go on Amazon, you'd see that they're listed there now. Uh, and this is really quite new uh, development. So we have at RNIB then uh, this production mechanism. We are producing braille, audio, large print, uh, something I haven't spoken out about too much, e-text and online. The talking book service that I mentioned where you kind of order books and they get sent to you and you can have something like three or four at a time and when you send it back you get your next list, your next book in your, in your list. A bit like Amazon used to do with DVDs, it's now Love Film isn't it? Um, you can also go on, uh, on the website if you're a register and paid up subscriber and stream books and, and listen to them now. So the whole, whole catalogue is available to you. But from a campaigning point of view, um, we're doing our lovely stuff that we can do as a charity, uh, but actually there is a sense of outrage as well that you know so little of material is available to people with print disabilities. People who lose their sight in later life who want to carry on reading find they're restricted to the material that we provide and a few other small, smaller organisations. Uh, folk who are wanting to study and find they can't get the textbooks that they want to in an accessible format. Um, children who are looking to study and find that their teachers are having to spend their lunch breaks sitting and copy typing bits of textbook in order for them to be able to get access to a large print or a braille version of it. Um, so our sense of campaigning leads us really to wanting to shift this 5%. Um, and we are one of the members of something called the Right to Read Alliance, which is some 20 organisations in the UK who are also walk, working towards this goal of the same book at the same price same time and possibly in the same place, not having to wait for a year or so before the book becomes available. You may have seen well-publicised um, ventures where, for example, Harry Potter, the latest edition of Harry Potter, is available in Braille uh, on the same day as it's published. But these examples are few and far between, and very often people have to wait quite a long time, um, if ever, to get access to the books they want to read. And there are also international copyright barriers. So I mentioned the Copyright Visually Impaired Persons Act in the UK, and we're producing lots of stuff. And the same copyright provisions exist in most countries, actually. Um, so in the States, in Canada, in France, in, in Australia, in New Zealand. Uh, but what we're not able to do is where we've created a bunch of books, and they've created a bunch of books, we're not able to kind of transfer those, even though the copyright provisions are, are largely the same. And so we're working with WIPO, the Worldwide Intellectual Property Rights Property Organisation, to see if we can actually shift that issue and make the better use of the scarce resources we've got within the voluntary sector. And also, uh, typical of many of the copyright provisions, actually the, the negotiations around getting the Act through meant that some people were excluded. Uh, folk with dyslexia, for example, who are unable to make use of regular print or struggle with it, are not covered by the Copyright Visually Impaired Persons Act. It's people with a visual impairment and people with a physical disability. Um, and so actually we're working in partnership and you know, getting some really good uh, collaborative work with organisations like the Publishers Licensing Society who recognise the injustice of that situation and looking to find a, a meaningful but safe way of extending those provisions that still protects the, quite rightly the intellectual property uh, of the rights holders. <coughs> And in particular, I've mentioned it a couple of times, working on this issue of access to textbooks, because the system that exists in the UK simply doesn't work. 
uh, and we've been campaigning very hard to get government to recognise that the system is broken and not fit for the 21st century. Uh, and they are now funding uh, a number of pilot projects that will look at new ways of, of doing this, which means that children in school will get access to textbooks in a format that works for them. But before I close, I want to talk a little bit about ebooks. And I demonstrated that uh, reading of the Science of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy through synthetic speech. And of course, if we're no longer having to wait for studio time and books can be produced in a matter of minutes rather than weeks or months, then uh, synthetic speech, of course, um, brings many benefits. But rather than us kind of going to the publisher and asking for a, a copy of the file, which often will come to us, despite the best efforts of the publisher, um, in maybe there's a PDF for every single print page of the book, or it's in some kind of weird and wonderful um, publishing tool um, that we've never heard of, or it's all kind of just an image of every page and we can't do anything with it. Um, if people are publishing their books as ebooks, uh, then the potential is great. If the potential is there for blind, partially sighted, and other print disabled people to be able to buy an ebook in the same way as other people are, and to be able to customise the reading experience. Most of the commercial ebook um, playback software that you use on a PC allows you to do things like change the foreground and background, change the size of the font, uh, and things like Adobe Reader also have built in text to speech as well or you can use it with a specialist program that someone who is blind would use called a screen reader. It, mean, it will basically read and you can navigate the text uh, in that. And what an amazing instant world of access that provides um, to someone. Ebooks, of course, have been trumpeted as the next big thing for a long time, but I truly believe we're on the cusp of some big development here. Uh, and I've been tracking in the States, for example, how many of the top 20 selling books on Amazon are available as ebooks. And it's gone from zero to two to something like 16 of those now available as Kindle editions. Uh, and we've got the likes of Waterstones and WH Smiths and so on selling thousands of ebooks now on their websites. Waterstones, I heard at an event um, the other day in London, that they now sell more ebooks per day on their website than they do print books. Um, so ebooks really are coming, and whilst they will only form a small part of the market, the, the, the gift for us is that many, many books will be available as ebooks and can be accessed using large print on the screen, large print on an ebook player where you can change the size of the font through synthetic speech or using a braille display attached to the computer so you can read line by line what's in that book. And as I said here, in the States they have 230,000 titles on Amazon, so it is absolutely massive. So, you know, ebooks, I think. Uh, offer a really good way of moving it forward without us doing this kind of weird and wonderful side activity of creating material. Although there will always be a place for well-produced braille, for human-narrated audio, this is about access to content where people just need that access. So some of you may have seen in the news last week or so that the Kindle 2 has been announced. Have, have people seen that? Can you keep up to date with that kind of stuff? So Kindle is the um, is the hardware uh, ebook playback system that's used by Amazon. They've sold 300,000, something like that. They sold a lot uh, of books uh, and they've sold lots and lots of titles to people who, who use it. And unlike a kind of laptop screen or something like that, it uses a technology called e ink, which means basically uh, it switches the display and then it doesn't use any power. So it basically kind of turns ink on and off on the little page it has. Uh, and it, it means that because it doesn't need any power, 
um, it's like a piece of paper so you don't it, it doesn't create light itself so you can read it in the sunlight on the beach as long, they've often got people pictures on the beach reading with their kindle um, <clears throat> and if you're reading uh, in bed though you need a little side light um, so it uses this e-ink really clear really easy to read good high contrast uh, and kindle 2 is basically the second generation now the thing they've done with the kindle 2 is they have introduced text-to-speech within the uh, ebook. So what you can do is, uh, if you're maybe driving uh, or you're struggling to read the text in a book, you can press a button that, and then it, the book will start to read to you. So really, really interesting in terms of kind of getting access to some of those 230,000 titles. And I'm looking forward to getting my Kindle too um, when I'm in the States in a couple of weeks. But it's controversial, actually, uh, as, um, as a move, because the Authors Guild in the States um, have uh, announced basically that they're taking the position that Amazon don't have the right to be able to do this. Uh, they don't have audio rights, they've just got the um, electronic book rights. And therefore, by the Kindle producing this um, synthetic speech, that is audio rights, uh, and therefore they're in breach of any arrangements they've got. And they're basically saying to publishers who are negotiating rights with Amazon at the moment, you should specifically exclude the ability for um, Amazon to pay back using synthetic speech. Um, and they're, I believe, seeking for Amazon to cease from um, including this provision in their player. Now they're very clear, this isn't a kind of anti-accessibility move on behalf of, um, of the authors. Uh, this is them being very sensitive at a very difficult time in a fragile market, when there's this massive kind of monster player of Amazon who do something apparently without consulting or communicating with the people whose intellectual property uh, they're retailing. Uh, but seen from another angle, you know, if this text-to-speech were not taken up as an option, or if it was prevented as a feature, and I was saying this has been available on a PC uh, for a very long time, that would be just such a shame and a blow for accessibility, which we would find very difficult. Uh, to live with, and so we, I think, would be on the other side of the barricades if it came to a bit of an argument on that. And maybe part of our discussion can talk about the kind of rights and wrongs of that. The rights and wrongs is the extent to which publishers should actually bear some of the costs of making books accessible, uh, just as a restaurant has to pay for a ramp, uh, whether or not that kind of extends to publishers and retailers too. But I think I want to end on a kind of positive note in that uh, organisations like RNIB and publishers and authors and retailers, we all have a shared goal, and that is to ensure that as many people have got access to the wonderful books, newspapers, magazines and journals that are produced in the UK, a powerhouse of publishing uh, and some really, really good stuff being produced. We simply want people to be able to get access to it or to continue to read. We, so we share that goal. And I'm delighted to say that our relations with publishers have shifted so much in the last, I'd say, three years, and very much we're seeking kind of solutions that work for both of us and solutions that aren't injurious to either either party. But I've run over my allotted half hour by a good um, quarter of an hour, uh, so I'll finish here, uh, and I'd be very very happy to take questions, which I think Jonathan is going to referee. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.